Welcome to Hello City, a lighthearted educational podcast about the built environment. I'm your host, Lisa Dunaway, AICP, Lead AP, and this is the second edition of Hello City Help, where I respond to listener questions. And before I start with this episode's question, I want to thank everybody who gave me feedback on the first edition about being underqualified when applying for certain jobs. And one of the questions I got as part of feedback to that episode made me realize that I had sort of touched on one issue, but hadn't expanded on it enough. So one listener asked about moving up internally within your own company or office. And that was a good point and something I should have expanded on a little bit better. So my episode before was really targeted towards entry-level people, maybe second-tier jobs, you know, three or five years of experience, but certainly people who don't have a lot of work experience and are going into the job market for the first time or the job market for maybe the second time in a completely new place. In that case, you, you do have to be very careful about how you present yourself in an ethical way. Certainly, if you are in any way part of some sort of ethics code within your profession, you have to pay attention to that too. So in my case, I am a certified planner with the American Institute of Certified Planners, and it is actually against our ethics code for me to misrepresent my qualifications. So if you were going for a job, let's say your second job at a whole new company, and you are an AICP, Not only should you just ethically not misrepresent yourself, but if you do misrepresent yourself, other AICP members can bring a uh, complaint against you because you violated the ethical code. That aside, if you are already in a company or an office, particularly if it's been a small office, it's much easier to make, you know, two jumps up the ladder in one swoop because you've probably been privy to a little bit of everything in that office. When there's only two people to do all the work, everybody has to do a little bit more of everything. Typically smaller offices have a flatter hierarchy. So you are more empowered and given more responsibility at a younger age, simply because there are not 200 people to do it. In a big firm, you are treated often more like a little worker bee than a queen bee. So keeping that in mind, I think if you have been um, in a place for a couple years and it's just been, you know, you and your boss, maybe one other person, maybe an administrative coordinator, and your boss has really empowered you with a lot of responsibility and decision-making capabilities um, and authority, then by all means, go for that job opening when your boss moves on or retires or whatever. If you have been there and proven to be a good employee, other people are going to have recognized that and are going to go to bat for you if necessary. But I've seen this work out for quite a few of the alumni of the program where I used to teach. They got moved into a very high position, like a director's position, within two or three years of being graduated because they were the only employee under that director and just did a really good job and had bosses that were great mentors to them and also listened to them. 
It can be threatening, I understand, to some folks when a newer, younger person who's hip on all the new technology comes in. So I encourage older people in positions of authority to embrace the change and allow your younger people to also teach you things, things that could make your office more efficient, certainly save money, and just generally make your life easier. So it it can be a two-way street, and it should be a two-way street. You can learn from younger folks just as much as they can learn from you. So moving on to the question that I received this week, someone asked me how I started my business. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about what I specifically did because I didn't take a very conventional way of starting my own business. Most people either get fired from a job, laid off from a job, somehow lose their job quickly and just decide this is a sign, I'm going out on my own. And hopefully they've had enough savings to be able to do that, enough experience, ability to get a client base, etc. More often these days, the popularity of the side hustle has come into play. So most people start planning for a year or two to just get all of their resources in order and then they go out on their own. I took the side hustle approach just sort of as something fun to do. I didn't have any long-term plans to turn a side hustle into my full-time business. I want to set forth a disclaimer immediately that just take what I'm saying as just sort of general advice, recommendations, but ultimately whatever you decide to do, you need to do research and call together whatever set of information from disparate sources you find applicable and helpful and, you know, good luck to you. But ultimately your success or failure is dependent on yourself. And that was a thing that I kept saying to people when I decided to go full time on my own was, Now I can know that my destiny is more in my own hands. I'm no longer privy to the whims of the people around me or above me, people that don't even know me making decisions that affect my daily job. That, to a large extent, is gone now. And if I fail at this, it's going to probably be my own fault now. And I would rather have things that way. I would rather be in control of my own destiny as much as I can at this point in my career. Now, I've not been full-time in my own business for an exceptionally long time. It's only been six months. So I still may fail at some point. And maybe my advice will be total shit. Who knows? But I wrote down 10 different things (laughs) that I wanted to talk to you about what it would probably take for you to start your own business, at least in the design professions like urban planning, landscape architecture, architecture. And I'm coming at that from an angle where most people who are in those fields practice within their general geographic region. A lot of people don't practice on projects that are on the other side of the country from them or in another country. It does happen. It's just not as common. Our professions are different from other design professions, perhaps like graphic design or marketing that can be done more independent of where they're located. The audience that I'm speaking to here might be a little bit more limited than previous episodes, but I'm not really sure. 
I don't have a lot of people in my network who started their own businesses who are in a different profession. A lot of the people I know in my network that have their own businesses are other landscape architects and architects and such. Okay, so the first thing that I want to advise you to have in starting your own business is plenty of years of experience. I do know a couple people who started their own business right out of college, and those that have been successful have been a little bit more atypical than just your standard consulting firm. They've taken a little bit different approach with the kind of work that they've done. And I think that allowed them to be very successful at a very young age because there wasn't really a template for how they needed to do business. The things that they were doing were very innovative and new. So they could just sort of wing it. And they were young enough and flexible enough that they didn't have to make a ton of money to be able to live. You know, they didn't own homes and fancy cars and have kids and all that stuff that might limit your choices um, a bit more. But I would say that those people are the exception. I know more people who have went into business for themselves right out of school who have been unsuccessful or I can see them making mistakes that I'm worried are going to come around to bite them very quickly. Like I've said in previous episodes, most of the time your network is a small network, perhaps not in bigger states, but certainly in Midwestern states, there are plenty of people who talk to each other on a regular basis. And if you are behaving in a shady manner, that will come around to get you very quickly. And so my advice is to have at least 10 years of experience in your field before you go out on your own. 15 or 20 are probably even better. On the low end of that range, I'm assuming that you've worked in a smaller firm where you've been more empowered, had more responsibility, and have been able to learn in close proximity to your boss the daily ins and outs of being a business owner. If you've only ever worked for giant firms, you've probably had better health insurance, better benefits, higher pay, but perhaps not as much responsibility and opportunities to learn. Not always, but I I would say most of the time that's a safe assumption. So in those cases, there's a trade-off where you've had perhaps a better quality of life and more certain stable circumstances but you've not learned as much just because there's so much strata in big firms. There's so much hierarchy and your ability to move up is often very limited because you are not going to be privy to all the information that other people in your firm will know. And it makes it difficult to know all the things that you need to know. In my case, I started my business when I had seven years of experience but I only intended it to be sort of fun, a side gig, because I was teaching full time. And honestly, the amount of work I was qualified to do seven years out of school was probably a not enough to have sustained me if I had wanted to be full time employed by myself. Since I had a steady income, I was able to search out the things for which I was qualified or have those sorts of projects come to me and feel comfortable saying, yes, I can do those. But I took the intervening 10 years from when I started to teach to when I ended my teaching career to learn more skills, to do different kinds of projects. I did contract work for other people in bigger firms and really tried to 
stay at the forefront of where my skills needed to be, not only to teach my students the most relevant information that I could, but to prepare myself for the day that I might go back into the working world. So by the time I started to be a full-time employee of myself, it was like 16, 17 years out of undergraduate. And I feel very comfortable in my skill set and my knowledge of business, insurance, law, taxes, that sort of thing to have went into business for myself full time now. And I'm not saying it's not scary. I'm not saying that I know everything. Heck no. Um, There are people I have to ask for advice on little things here and there. And when you have a nice network of people, that allows you to do that. That allows you to, to ask people for help and not feel bad about it especially when they're friends of yours and you know that they're paying it forward to you because someone helped them in the past or maybe someone didn't help them in the past and they had to learn everything the hard way and they don't want that to happen to you. Those are both equally nice sorts of people to know and to genuinely care about and make sure you know you keep in contact with them so you're not only going to them when you need them for something. So that does lead into my second part of a network is so important when starting your own business. So having 10, 20 years of experience allows you to probably have a broad network, particularly if you've been involved in your professional organization. You don't want to be known to everybody because you've had 10 different jobs in 10 years. That just does not look good to most people. When you are young, when the fees are low, immediately get into your professional organization, certainly go to the conferences. But in all honesty, I found that going to like the cocktail parties and the social hours were what grew my network the most until I got to a point where I was like an officer or a board member in my state chapter. So if you are able to just do that and go make some friends, people will recognize that you have talent and abilities and skills and maybe someday if you do get fired and and don't feel bad everybody's been fired I've been fired if you get laid off if the economy goes again you can tap into that network or you may find that people come to you but you want to be known as someone who's reliable friendly organized reliable is probably the most thing so I'll, I'll say that twice and you don't even have to worry if you're sort of introverted, you can still go to social hours and just let other people talk. That's totally fine. I find those sorts of things exhausting as someone who is actually an introvert. But once I go, I make myself go, you know, and then I do enjoy it. And I always like catching up with people. And being a good friend to people in your network goes beyond liking their Instagram posts and retweeting their tweets. So be genuine in your outreach to your network. But once you have that big network, it's going to be so much easier for you to find work. And it's really hard to have a large network if you're only five years out of school or something like that. But being an officer in your professional organization is a great way to at least have everybody know your name. You know, if you're like a membership chair of a membership committee or you're the person who does the communication stuff or the social media, maybe you run the website 
whatever that might be, you can get at least your name, if not your face, out to basically everyone in your state. And then another thing that's really good to do, once you have a level of expertise in some subject, is to be a presenter at your state conference. It's certainly cooler for your ego to go present at national conferences and maybe write papers or books or do all those fancy things. But to get in with your local network, the people who will be hiring you for projects, presenting at your state chapter conferences is absolutely the way to go. It's cheaper, it's less intimidating, but you are letting people know that you have areas of expertise that may be in demand for them. And if not, in the future, You'd be surprised how many people will be like, I remember like four years ago, you presented about rain gardens and blah, blah, blah. That was really cool. And I was wondering if I could hire you to come help us design a rain garden for this corridor project we're doing, you know, whatever it is, just an example. If you're going to start using people in your network to get jobs before you leave your current employer, you've got to be careful. Your contract may say that you are not allowed to moonlight aka work for other people or do other jobs related to your field outside of your normal employment or you may have signed a non-compete contract when you entered into that job which often means that you can't do any work with clients you have at that job for two years after you have left that job or like if they pay for you to get registered and if it's in your contract, you've got to work for them for two years after that. You got to be careful because you may have to pay them back for certain things. Likewise, if they pay for you to get your master's degree or something like that, you got to be careful. So make sure that you can let them pay for it and then take that skill set and that stamp that you've earned and move on. And then you'll be ready to do all the things that you need to do. Next topic is savings. I've already touched on it a bit. And here again, disclaimer, I am not the end-all be-all. Continue to take everything I say with a grain of salt. (laughs) So I've seen different numbers in terms of how much you should have saved when you go out on your own. I think the biggest factor in that is just the lifestyle that you want to have. Two months to six months is the range that I've heard other people say from different sources. I watch a lot of YouTube. Full disclosure, so much YouTube. I also listen to so many podcasts. (laughs) But that's the range that I've heard other people say. Um, I've not done a ton of research on that, to be honest. And that might be... I don't know. That might be a little egotistical. That may be a little presumptuous on my part. But I also think there's something to be said for having enough experience that you don't have a ton of questions when you go out on your own. If you're at the point in your career where you still have so many questions about how to start your own business and it's really terrifying to do it and you don't know if your network's big enough and you don't know how you're going to find clients, then it's not time. You're not ready yet. And that's okay. Like I said before, use your current job as a resource to learn the things you want to know. Let them think that you're just a go-getter because you ask to attend more meetings. You ask to go meet with clients. Whatever that may be, just use them as a resource to learn what you need to know. No problem there. That is completely reasonable of you. 
And I think a smart employer expects that of a lot of their younger employees anyway. People very rarely expect that folks that join them as an entry-level person are going to stick around for years and years to come. That's just not the culture of most workplaces anymore. In terms of savings, you really have to plan for the inevitable and then also the unexpected. It's really easy to track your expenses with a lot of credit cards. I know the credit card that I have actually breaks all of my expenses into categories. And so I put basically everything on that card and then pay it off each month. That way I earn a bunch of points that I can use to buy other stuff like cat litter or whatever the heck. You could do that. You could use something like mint.com. Track your expenses for like a solid year. I don't think that six months is enough, especially if you live in a temperate climate. You need to be able to account for the range that your like heating bills will be, right? So in Indiana, we can easily go from having an electric bill that's 50 bucks in a warm month to like 200 in a cold month. So I would track your expenses for a year and figure out how much you need to live at whatever level you want to live at. If you want to just keep living as large as you have been, you're going to have to save for a lot longer because you're going to be willing to save less per month. But if you're willing to go ahead and scale your lifestyle back so you can put back big chunks, not only are you going to be able to save faster to get out on your own earlier, it's not going to feel as scary when you've made some sort of lifestyle change and have to sort of chip away at your savings until you get some more projects down the road. The biggest thing that I didn't know in my early career I wish that like minimalism had been around when I was in my early 20s because I think I would have so much more money today, honestly. The stuff that I spent money on in my 20s, like thinking that I had to like prove something to society or like my family or my friends. Like I bought a condo at 26 and that was the stupidest thing because I had no intention of ever staying in one place and I bought it right before the market crash and that super sucked because I was underwater on it for a long time and overpaid my mortgage every month to get out from under it. Ugh, just, I don't think that owning property is the American dream anymore. So there are a lot of things. If I were like 23 years old now, I would do things so much differently. I wouldn't have more clothes than I could possibly wear in a month wearing a different outfit every day. I wouldn't have bought like furniture I never did buy like really nice cars or anything, but I did spend too much money eating out and I did spend too much money on clothes for sure in my 20s. In my 30s, like I realized I just didn't need any of that crap and I really scaled back what I spent on just stuff and I wish I had thought of it sooner. I guess it was better late than never. And that scaling back did allow me to save up a little bit more Before I went out on my own, I don't know that I saved up an extraordinary amount more than I would have. I really didn't plan to go out on my own for like years in advance. It was sort of at the back of my mind. I had talked about it a little bit with my husband here and there. But when it came time to make that decision, I really made it within like the matter of a week. 
like I looked at our budget because I kind of always did that every month anyway and looked at what we had in savings and I was just like I got to make this decision right now because being in academia I was bound by the school year and the timing of that so I either had to do it then or I had to wait another year and my husband was like just do it so I just gave my notice and that was that Um, in other professions that aren't bound to a certain calendar you have more flexibility there anyway decide how you are willing to live keep track of things and certainly save up more than you'll think you'll need and in our case we have a home that was built in the 50s I'm worried that we're gonna have to replace the furnace I'm worried that we're gonna have to replace the the sewer line from the house out to the street Um, I also have several pets who are older, and we actually did have an emergency with one of our cats recently that was very expensive. So keep things like that in your mind. If you have an old car that may need a transmission in the next year, if you do have older pets, if you have an older house, if you have health problems, none of those things should keep you from going out on your own, really, if you've saved enough to cover those rainy day sorts of issues. And I would plan for like two big issues to come up, you know, whatever that may be in your case, you'll just have to sort of think like what's most likely to happen, you know, and how much does it cost to replace a transmission in a Toyota Corolla or whatever it is. All right. Other financial things, more on the business side, you also are going to need to do savings on the business side of things. You have to plan for what startup costs that you'll have and then some. So perhaps you have a lot of the equipment you already need, but there are things that you will absolutely need day one. Are those things that you're going to just go ahead and purchase and have? If you can afford it, great. But perhaps those are things that you may need to outsource for a while until you build up some revenue and then you can purchase those items. Let's say printing. Maybe you can get things printed at Staples for a while. And then there's a certain point where the inconvenience of that outweighs the cost and you have enough money and you can go ahead and buy your own printer or maybe you can lease a printer. That's just one example. But there are certainly startup costs and you're going to need savings that are just for your business when you start off because no matter what kind of work you're doing, you're probably going to have like internet that you need to pay for and your phone. So before you even make a cent, you need to be able to make those payments every month for the foreseeable future. And in my case, I had enough in my business checking to cover those sort of technology expenses No equipment purchasing, but just technology expenses for about six months. So then the next thing you got to do is get a business checking account. That is just for your business and get a business credit card. There are some really nice resources online to help you choose the credit card that's best for your needs. You want to be able to keep your personal expenses away from your business expenses as much as possible. So you want to do some research on that and keep those expenses separate as much as possible because it's kind of a pain when it comes time for taxes. When you get your checking account, make sure that you are getting one that suits your needs. A lot of times free checking accounts have a minimum balance requirement and if you're getting started, you may not be able to keep 
$500 in that checking account or whatever the requirement is. And sometimes the fees aren't a lot. They're like five bucks, but that might start to just plain annoy you or it might add up if that is a continuous problem for you. It is worth the, you know, half hour it takes to research your local banks and find out what's best for you. Doing the research on credit cards is equally important as well, just in terms of what you're going to be spending the most money on, what kind of perks you think are going to be the most helpful to you. And certainly that doesn't mean that you have to stick with those forever. So related to financial things is the issue of taxes. And if you are a younger person, chances are you've used some sort of online accountant. And I think those are great. I have used one for like 10 years and my returns were so much higher than when I just let my mom's accountant do my taxes like way back in the day. That may not universally be true, but it was true for me. Now I have my LLC for my professional consulting business. I also have another LLC because I'm a registered yoga teacher and I have that as a separate thing. And that is multiple steps of taxes that I need to do. I also have to do my husband's now when I do mine because it's better for us to file jointly. So there comes a certain point where I think that using online services runs you some risks. I have a cousin who is a tax accountant who is really helpful to me on these matters and doesn't mind to give me free advice because we're cousins. And once in a while I call her and ask her something. I try not to bother her. It does behoove you at a certain point to actually pay a real person a little bit more because you can work through your particular circumstances. And if it turns out to be cut and dry way more than you thought it was going to be, that's fine. The next year, just do the online thing. But if you find from talking to a real in-person accountant that there's more nuances to your situation than you thought, then you know, right? And you can stick with them. And I would definitely recommend talking to an accountant before you go out on your own. They will have advice for you on how to keep your money separate leading up to going out on your own. They'll probably have good budgeting and just regular old advice for you. They may be able to help you navigate some of the retirement savings, things that you're going to need to tackle or recommend somebody to you if you haven't already been saving for retirement on your own. I pray to God you have been since you were like 18 years old. If not, get on that right now. You'll thank me later. Also, in terms of tax purposes, just forming your business. There are different implications for different types of businesses. So if you are incorporated versus an S-Corp versus an LLC or a sole proprietorship or whatever it is, those have different tax implications. And depending on your personal life, whether you are married or not, what kind of business you want to form, are you going to form multiple businesses? They may need to be different types of business entities. Those are all things that you can research a little bit on your own just to, you know, be dangerous. But I would still recommend at the end of the day, paying a little bit to an accountant to sit down with them for an hour and just go through all of your questions. And oftentimes, if you have some sort of mentor in your life, maybe somebody in a completely different field 
they often will know a local accountant who they trust, who's been good to them, who's never steered them wrong, and you can go to that person. Perhaps a little bit less important, but also in the spirit of how you're categorizing your business, if you are qualified in your state to be some sort of disadvantaged business enterprise, you should do it. So in the state of Indiana, for example, you can be a woman-owned business enterprise, veteran-owned business enterprise, minority-owned business enterprise, All of those follow under the umbrella of being a disadvantaged business enterprise. And that gets you some perks. It gets you on some mailing lists for RFQs and RFPs that bigger firms don't get. And trust me when I say that you'll want every leg up that you can get and don't feel bad about it. It's worth the trouble to go for them because it is so hard to be a business, especially a sole proprietor, when you are a female, minority, veteran, any sort of disadvantage, it is tough. So be enthusiastic about getting whatever certification you can in terms of being a disadvantaged business. It's going to differ from state to state. Indiana is pretty stringent when they're allowing you to get your certification, and I think maybe rightly so, you have to be able to prove that you have the skills or have done the work. In Indiana, it's not expensive to become an LLC. You can do it in like 10 minutes, and I think it's like 75 bucks online, something like that. I haven't done it in a while. It's been 10 years, but it's not hard. And then being registered as a disadvantaged business was not expensive. It was just a lot of paperwork. And actually, it wasn't as much as I thought it was going to be. I had heard from some friends that it was just exhausting and so much work and so much back and forth. And I actually found it to be a moderate amount of paperwork, but the people at the state were very nice. And I had to go back and forth a couple times with them. Long and short of it was that a lot of the process went well, and I'm glad that I've gotten it. Depending on the types of projects that you go for, the funding sources for those projects might require that a disadvantaged business be on the team. So maybe they require 5 or 10% of the work goes to a disadvantaged business, in which case bigger firms that are not disadvantaged are going to come to you because they're in your network again. They know you. You have enough years of experience, and they will want to partner with you to fill that quota, but they also are going to recognize that you're perfectly capable of doing that, and they're going to value your presence and hopefully keep bringing you on board. I know big firms that hire the same WBEs and MBEs over and over and over again because they found that they work well together, and it wasn't just because they were a disadvantaged business of any sort. The final thing I want to cover is the issue of billable hours. So when I was a young professional, my second internship in Arizona, I had a boss who was the greatest. I was really lucky. Both of my internships, I had just the best mentors. And this particular boss said one of the most important things I think I've ever heard in my field from anyone. And that was, don't bill yourself out too low because it denigrates the whole profession. And that 
spoke to me so much, obviously, because I'm still saying it to people almost 20 years later. If you are a person who is trying to get work and you quote a very low billable hour to somebody, you're hurting the entire profession. You're not just hurting yourself. Because if you lowball a quote, that means other people have to lowball a quote, and then everybody starts to have to do it. And that sucks. And you don't want that to happen to you or anybody else. You don't want to cause harm to the profession in general. And I have a friend who has been a self-employed web designer for just years and years, successful guy. He said to me the other day, and it was so great, when he tries to mentor other people who are coming up in the web design field, he always says to them, don't lowball your billable hours because the people who want to hire you for that low rate aren't worth it. They will cause you more trouble in the long run and then you're only getting a little bit amount of money from them per hour for all this trouble that they're causing you. The people who are going to be good clients are going to be willing to pay you what you're worth. So don't be afraid to throw that number out there that you really think is what you should be paid. The first time that I quoted a project to somebody, it was a residential project. I'll never do another one again because of this experience. But because it was a private homeowner, I lowballed them. And that person ended up being a nightmare. They like completely broke all of the terms of our contract and tried to blame it on me and ended up paying me only half of my fee. I didn't want to go through the trouble of doing all the small claims stuff. It wasn't really worth it. I just moved on and I learned a lesson from it. The next time I had a project that I was pitching to a client, I gave them the number that I really wanted and everything was fine. And I've done it every project since and everything has been fine. Now there there may be a day where somebody's just like, oof, that's too much okay, no hard feelings for real, because that's a client you don't want. If they don't understand or at least give you the benefit of the doubt what your skills are, that's not somebody you want to work for because you're only going to make, let's say $20 an hour for 200 hours of dealing with their drama and inconsistencies and not getting back to you and questioning everything that you do and ignoring your emails or whatever the heck. But if you give them the quote for $100 an hour, because that's what you really think you're worth, and they say no, you're better off without them. You want to go for the clients who do want to pay you what you're worth, because even if they don't understand everything about your job, they're hiring you because they trust you. They believe in you. You've been able to represent enough of the type of work that you've done that they have faith in you. Those clients universally end up being so much better. It can be a little scary, especially when you're starting out, and especially if you're a little bit younger, but just go for it. Put yourself out there. Give yourself some credit. Ask for the number that you want. And be professional. Be polite about it, but be firm about it. If they come back to you and they're like, ooh, you know, that's a little bit more than we thought it was going to be, Would you be willing to do it for $75 an hour? Maybe that's something that you can work with. They still are probably not going to be a horrendous client because they were willing to ask. 
right? They were willing to be nice about it. They were willing to negotiate. That is something that you can decide for yourself and kind of go with your gut. Also, it's okay to have different rates for different clients. Let's say that you're working for a nonprofit and so you're going to charge them less per hour than if you were going to work for some big multi-state firm. That is perfectly acceptable. You do not have to have a standard rate for everything that you do for everybody. But then again, keep in mind, there is always going to be a threshold under which you do not want to go for all the reasons that I just went into. And I think that circles around to where I started. Your billable amount, whatever you're charging per hour, is going to certainly increase the older you get. And people are going to recognize they're paying for that experience, but that means they're going to get a better product probably and probably in a shorter amount of time with less drama and mistakes from you. But don't worry if you do make a mistake. One of the worst things you can do as a business person is to not fess up when you've made a mistake and do what you can to make it right. Even if that means you have to take an L, then take the L and be the bigger person. Again, networks are small, word gets around, but you'll also just feel like better about yourself as long as you're a nice person, I guess. You're going to feel better about yourself because you fessed up and you made it right and people are going to forgive you. People realize people make mistakes and they will probably still hire you again in the future if in the long run things worked out and you gave them a good product. Now, if you just went scorched earth on them, certainly they're not going to hire you again and they're going to tell everybody they know, but... <laughs> you've probably earned it at that point if you've messed up that royally. Experience compounds itself in so many ways from your knowledge to how big your network is to how much you can save to how much you can charge per hour. It all just rolls into one. So I completely understand people who just want to be like, fuck this place and just leave, right? And maybe you're only like 20 years, eight years old. And for your own mental health, you got to get out of there. Like those situations happen. I get it. And I saw it happen one time. There was a guy at a place that I used to work who was always given such a hard time by the bosses. He was a little eccentric. Like he was kind of a tough nut to crack, but he had a lot of talent. And those of us who actually like took the time to pay attention to it could see that talent. If you were just willing to deal with like a little bit of eccentricity, it was fine. But our bosses weren't and they were just kind of like stubborn jerks. And he got into an argument with them one day and just like called their bluff. And it was awesome. He was like, fine, if that's the way you feel, I'll just leave. And he got his stuff and he walked out and it was amazing. And I don't think the bosses actually thought like he was for real. I think they thought he was coming back. And a couple of us were like, whoa, is he going to come back? And he didn't. He was a smart dude who had some savings. He had a network. He had another job within a couple months. Everything was fine. Met somebody, got married. Things were good. And it was like, oh, you know, like everybody has a point in their career where they want to be able to do that. Well, then fine. Middle finger in your face. Walk out the door. And he did it. I don't know if I'd ever have the guts to do it. I hope I never have a situation where I have to do that in the rest of my career. But it was pretty beautiful to experience. It was a beautiful thing to see. 
And I still think about that from time to time. And I still talk about it from time to time with the people who also witnessed it when I bump into them. And we always think, man, that was a great day. (laughs) So I hope that you found this episode helpful. If you are thinking about starting your own business or you have a sense that you may want to someday, I honestly never really had it in the back of my mind, but I never had it in the back of my mind that I would teach either. Things have worked out pretty nicely for me. I've been pretty privileged and lucky and I'm very grateful. But if there is any sort of entrepreneurial spirit within you, you know, it's never too early to start planning ahead for these sorts of things. It's never too early to start saving for retirement, (laughs) let alone saving for a nice little nest egg that can protect you in the event of being laid off or fired or having that day where you get to give your boss the middle finger and just walk out. I want to hear about it if you do. Oh my gosh, please email me your story if you've done that. Oh, I would love that so much. Otherwise, please email me your questions if you would like to have a question answered on a future edition of Hello City Help. Hello City Podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet them to me at Hello City Pod, or you can private message me if you don't want to like tweet it to the entire universe. I get that. We should be on all of the different podcast providers that you use, but if you find one that we are not on and you would like us to be on that one, please let us know. I'm happy to add more providers to the buffet that we are now offering. Also, I'm on YouTube. So Hello City Podcasts at YouTube is the channel where they're going to be not only the recordings of the regular episodes, but I'm going to do some tutorials in the future. So if you go subscribe, you'll be ready the day that those start hitting. I think the first one I'm going to do is a basics of SketchUp. That seems to be a really popular ask. And then finally, we are on Patreon now at Hello City Podcast on Patreon. It's not any sort of tiered situation yet because I would really like to hear from people what kind of bonus content they would like. What would it be that would be worth your dollar or $5 a month or whatever? Like, what would you like to get in terms of content to be a Patreon? And then when I get some feedback on that, we can move forward from there. But it is set up if you are able and willing to contribute even a dollar like that's cool but don't feel bad if you can't I'm still going to be doing this anyway for whatever reason I have this itch to scratch where I want to (laughs) put what I know out into the world just to sort of pay it forward because I did have good mentors like I said and I did have good experiences when I was in academia there's still just something in me that wants to help spread the knowledge around So thank you for listening. I really appreciate your time. I hope that you have an excellent week. I hope to be back next week with another regular episode. Hopefully I'll get another question or two that I can respond to in another Hello City Help. So thank you again. And remember, make no small plans. Have a great day.